Give us the ballot. This is a smashing grab on our democracy. I think I did win the popular vote in a true sense. I think there was tremendous cheating in California. Give us the ballot. You, you the, the people have the power. Have the power. Have the power. Have the power. Wind of change blowing through this country. And those of you who are familiar with it know that in America, democracy is hypocrisy. Democracy is hypocrisy. Give up the battle. Then in the name of democracy, let us use that power. Let us all unite. Let us fight for a new world, a decent world, that will give men a chance to work, that will give youth a future and old age a security. By the promise of these things, brutes have risen to power, but they lie. They do not fulfill that promise. They never will. Dictators free themselves, but they enslave the people. Unprecedented, anti-democratic, and unconstitutional. Wind of change blowing through this country. Give us the battle. Hello, you're listening to Navarre FM on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's finest radio station. I am James Butler. You'll have heard there a barrage of voices, largely 20th century, extolling or condemning or exploiting democracy, which is a word we use quite often without thinking about its roots. But the history of ancient democracy was a history of the struggle of the many, that's one sense of the word demos in democracy, against the few, the oligoi, where we get our word oligarch from. How's that for contemporary? Joining me today to talk about democracy, ancient and modern, is Paul Cartledge, Emeritus A.G. Leventis Professor of Greek Culture at Cambridge and author, most relevantly, of a big, deep, rich book called Democracy, A Life, which is a study of the emergence, eclipse and re-emergence of this profound, unsettling and radical concept throughout ancient and modern political history. Uh, That book has recently been reissued with a postscript on our current democratic turbulence and I really, really recommend it. It's a brilliant, utterly captivating history. Uh, Paul has also most recently been working on the history of non-Athenian democracies and on the role of culture, especially tragedy, in how the ancients thought about their politics and we'll touch on both of those too today. But I was thinking we could spend a little time at the start sketching out democracy in ancient Greece. For a lot of we moderns, there's a sense that democracy was a thing that was invented in a broadly homogeneous ancient Greece. Uh, That ancient Greece is represented by Athens, which is where democracy flourished. And it was somehow, even if not exactly, then in some way genetically related to what we call democracy today. And actually, the picture is a good deal more complicated than that. One of the things the early chapters of the democracy book do so well, I think, is point up both the strangeness of ancient democracy, both for us retrospectively, but in historical context as well. It certainly also leaves one with a sense of how many of what we might call constitutional shifts 
there were, over the course of its existence, one important ancient source lists 11 transformations in the Athenian polity. It's maybe, therefore, a little demanding to ask for a sketch of something so mutable. Uh, But for listeners who have perhaps only a very vague sense of ancient Greek democracy, could you give us a quick grounding in how it worked in Athens? So I always um, like to tease my students, but also, of course, general uh, listeners and readers, by saying that there was no such thing as ancient Greece, and so there was no such thing as ancient Greek democracy. What I meant by that is Hellas, which is what the Greeks actually called their cultural universe, and they called themselves Hellenes, not Greeks. We call them Greeks because the Romans called them Greeks was a massively complex, diverse, and very scattered um, universe, extending all the way from southern France in the west, North Africa, around the Black Sea as far east as what's today Georgia. And that's before Alexander the Great then expanded the Greek world as far east as uh, what's today Pakistan. So there were something like 800 to 1,000 separate Greek communities within that cultural circle called Hellas. They all had something in common, namely Greek language, uh, religion, basic myths, a certain sense, of course, false of actual physical um, relationship, as it were, DNA, we would say today. But, 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 but... Within that 800 to 1,000, there was immense diversity, especially, not least, in other words, this is a defining characteristic politically. So there was never a Greek nation in a political sense. There are no nation states. So ancient Greece is purely a, a conventional term. All the things that ancient Greeks did within their world between, well, whatever parameters you take chronologically. So within that huge number, there are two or three that are the most diagnostic, that most um, stand for what ancient Greeks achieved and what they passed on and what we therefore think is valuable. And of those two or three, Athens, Sparta, Macedon under Philip and Alexander. Athens is the one that has had the most um, lasting and broad impact up to the present day. Sometimes people speak of the shadow of the Parthenon, and the Parthenon is a very peculiarly Athenian democratic monument. So what does the term democratia mean, or what does it potentially mean? It's a composite of two ancient Greek words, demos and kratos. Kratos is okay. It's fairly unambiguous. It means power, strength, might, force. So who's going to exercise that? On behalf of whom? To what end? Well, the demos. This is where a problem arises. It's not often apparent. Demos is ambiguous and ambivalent. So it can mean the people as a whole. And so you say the Athenians were Democrats. The Athenian state or city had a democratic constitution, yes. But who actually was the active constituent demos, in other words, the relevant uh, definition? And this is where there are two possible answers to that question. One is all Athenian citizens who were 
adult, uh, they were male, they were legitimate, and they were properly entered on the relevant register of where they lived. They lived actually in deems. This is a bit confusing because the very same word, demos, uh, means deem, means village, parish, ward, but it also means all the people, all the citizens. However, operationally, and this is where I'd bring in Aristotle, who was the most sophisticated ancient interpreter of ancient Greek politics. Of course, he wrote a work called Politica, matters to do with the polis. It doesn't mean politics, it means what the Greeks did within their particular political framework of the polis, the citizen state. And so the other meaning is the masses, the poor, those who are not elite, those who don't have so much wealth uh, that they don't have to work. They have to work and they are relatively poor. Some are absolutely very poor. Now, if you look at that operationally and if you interpret politics as Aristotle did, in class terms, there is actually within the, any democratia a class struggle going on between the demos in the sense of the masses and the demos in the sense of the people as a whole. So the elites typically, typically not always, but as it were, predictably, are anti-democratic. If you're rich, democracy doesn't actually offer you very much. It puts lots of demands on you. You have to give up a considerable amount of your wealth to public good. And you, on the other hand, because you're a few, by definition, you're a minority, you're constantly going to be outvoted if the issue is ever, should the rich pay for such and such a ship or such and such a festival. So um, what I'm trying to get across is A, diversity, multiplicity, B, conflict. It's not a happy sort of notion. It's in, in itself a problematic one. And then thirdly, as you've already said, it changes. There's no one version, even at Athens. Athens had three or four different versions of its democratia over a period of up to a couple of hundred years with some uh, breaks. There were a couple of counter-revolutions. There is, I think, for sort of any modern reader approaching ancient well Athenian democracy there, there is this kind of slightly confusing welter of these mass institutions and they really are mass institutions the, the ecclesia the bully uh, and then there's the areopagus which is a bit different and then there's the legal system which also seems to to be sort of you know really deeply uh, interwoven with uh, ancient Greek concepts of democracy and I think maybe the thing to underline here and the thing that I think is sometimes difficult for people to grasp is 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 not only how many people were involved in all these institutions which are for the size of, of the polis extremely large um, but also how much time they seem to take up yeah. um, <laughs> which which you know I mean I think it's it, it's it's very hard to you know we say things like well you know ancient you know Athenian democracy was direct democracy it was participative but it really seems to have been something that took up an enormous amount of of sort of civic time is that yeah. right yes uh, Oscar Wilde uh, amusingly said that socialism the trouble with socialism was it took up too many free evenings well now we live in such a different world of course I mean even Oscar Wilde technically and uh, in all sorts of other ways so 
most Athenians, like most ancient Greeks, were farmers and peasant farmers. So that actually takes quite a lot of time, just simply preparing the soil, planting, weeding, etc., uh, etc. Et Typical growers of um, vines, for example, it's thought sort of two-thirds of their year would be occupied. There would be two-thirds days in any one year, about 240, in which you'd have to do something to your vines. So it's not the case that politics, um, as it were, numerically, quantitatively dominated every Athenian citizen's life, but that of the time left over from not gaining a living, which took an awful lot of time for most of them, a huge proportion of that was devoted to the public sphere as opposed to the private. They did have a notion of that distinction, by the way, but they privileged always the public. The, the Greek word for public is an adjective based on demos, so it shows you just how connected public and democratic were in the average Athenian's uh, mentality. So you mentioned the major institutions through which the Athenians made decisions and executed them. And I suppose I'd say, the, apart from its being direct, which you also mentioned, the other thing that we've got to think away is what we, since the 18th century, it was, a, I think, an English idea taken up by Montesquieu, the division of powers between the executive, the legislative, and the judicature. No such notion. If you did politics, politics in one sphere, you legislated, you also did it equally in another. You held an executive office, you were a, a judge-juror in the court. So their notion of politics was seamless and total in a way that ours is much more broken up by difference of function, um, serving as what's sometimes called checks and balances. They didn't have that. And of course, therefore, if you don't like ancient democracy, if you see it as a sort of form of mob rule, as the founding fathers of the United States did, James Madison in particular, then to you, it's a terrible sort of system. And as... Um, I think it was Madison said every Athenian assembly was a mob, even if every Athenian had been a Socrates, who of course was not a very good Democrat, if he was a Democrat at all. Um, every mob, every assembly meeting would have been a, a, a mob, a mass mob <laughs> meeting. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, yeah, there are a couple of things I think maybe that, that, that are also worth picking up just in terms of sort of the strangeness, I think, to, to sort of modern... Uh, understanding. One is the the question of selection or sortition. And this is sometimes picked up by people who want to champion sort of ancient, ancient derived democratic reforms to, to contemporary democracies, some of which I think are actually very good ideas. But then the number of offices which in, uh, so I was asking my partner last night, you know, what would you want to hear about ancient democracy? You know, what was the, what's the question? He, would ask? he asked, well, who, do, who, who did they decide to vote for? I thought, I, I thought, well, isn't that conception so interesting? Um, but that, that for us is fundamental to what democracy is, uh, that we choose to vote for people. Whereas this question of sort of sortition and lottery seems so fundamental to many of these offices uh, in ancient Greece. There were many, many offices. Um, it's estimated something like 700 per annum, if you include the council of 500 per annum. That's a, a great number. 
out of the, one must say um, to set some limits, the population of Athens fluctuated between twenty and sixty thousand over the fifth and fourth centuries BC. But there'll be a kind of modal uh, number of thirty odd thousand. But you've actually put your partner too finger on an essential difference. If we were to select a slogan, let's say we're thinking about Ukraine today, free elections, and of course, fair elections, honest, all that, but elections. Go to Athens, 5th, 4th century BC, and you speak to a convinced ideological democrat. He, and it would probably be a he, not a she, would say, look, elections, are oligarchic by definition uh, in order to put your head above the parapet you need money you need friends uh, typically you need family you need all kinds of things that make you odd distinctive and uh, part of a minority but go the other way sortition the use of the lottery random anonymous, everybody should put their hat in the ring and can be encouraged to do so because no one's going to say, ha, you didn't get chosen by lot because you're ugly, stupid, you've did something very bad, you've got an awful family member and so on. Because it's random, anonymous and encourages everybody. In other words, it's the most equal form of participation. And that's why in the earliest theoretical account we have, it's actually in Herodotus, about what are the differences between democracy, oligarchy or aristocracy and monarchy and why should one want to go for one rather than the other? Well, the pro-democracy speaker, he says, all offices must be selected by lot. So were they in Athens? No. Why? For pragmatic reasons, two kinds of officials were elected. One of them, one kind, was financial. If you've got big sums of public money to deal with and you run the risk of either incompetence or uh, dishonesty, in other words, putting your hand in the till, rich people who are used to handling large sums of money are less likely to be tempted and more likely to be competent. And let's say they are found guilty of peculation, then you can get the money back from them. Whereas if you put a poor person, you can see the argument there. The other office, the other kind of office was uh, military. So either a general on land or a, um, a, an admiral on the sea, they were elected likewise. And the thought there was, you want somebody who's got certain amount of the kinds of qualities of leadership that are necessary in a crisis. And so you don't want to risk having somebody by lot who's maybe just a little bit not quite all there, or a little bit cowardly, or a little bit uh, incompetent in other respects. And so you make sure that your elected leaders are of the right sort. So there's just one more dimension I want to touch on before before moving on a bit, and and that's one of the differences when I you know when reading the democracy book and, and thinking thinking these things through. You know, one of the things that seems such a difference to me between the the, the contemporary and the ancient is the scale of accountability 
And this seems to me to be something that happens on, on every change of office holder. There's an audit of the previous tenure. Uh, and that there was this certainly early on in the story that you tell, there is the option of ostracism, which then seems to become, it causes much ranting and, and condemnation in later writers, but, but the ability to, to literally exclude someone from the political community, which you know, requires a sort of significant majority vote so on and so on, uh, and then later becomes sort of contest in the legal form rather than uh, individual exile. But it seems to me, it, am I right in thinking that, that that strong sense of accountability is really quite distinctive? You're completely right. And in that theoretical discussion that I mentioned, after the pro-democracy speaker says all offices should be chosen by lot, and I then added, but in Athens, actually, there were two major exceptions. The speaker goes on to say, and all offices shall be accountable. And one of our earliest um, surviving dramas, in fact, it's the earliest surviving uh, complete play, it's Aeschylus's Persians of 472 BC. One of the points of it is to make the Athenians feel good that they're not Persians, that they live in a much better society with a far superior political system. One of the defects, demerits of the Persian autocracy is that the Persian emperor is is not accountable. So the way the Athenians made their officials accountable was through the council of 500, which every year you couldn't serve two years running, and therefore every year a certain number of the councillors had to change by law. The uh, offices were allocated the number of spaces in the 500 on a regional basis proportionately originally to the original distribution of the population and it was through the council that all officials had to present their audits if they had handled public money and it was therefore a committee subcommittee of the council that audited then if found if irregularities were found it was they who then set in motion the legal procedure of um, accusation and condemnation in front of a public uh, people's court the jurors of which were all also selected exclusively by lot from people who put their names forward and you could be a juror um, there were 6,000 on the panel from which a particular jury would be drawn, again by lot. You could be uh, a juror indefinitely. You didn't have to wait a year. There was no limit on tenure of that because that, this is often what's forgotten, we think of justice, the law courts, um, Supreme Court now we have and other courts, as being an affair of lawyers, professionals, as it were. Yes, you and I might find ourselves in court, but we, if it's a major political issue, well, a criminal charge, then we're very unlikely to be actually a principal. We're not going to be uh, one of the actual people prosecuting. On the other hand, we might be a juror today. Um, that's uh, still um, one of the very few, actually, remnants of the use of the lot to choose um, people to perform a really quite important political function for the society as a whole. But for the Athenians, being a juror was doing democratic politics. And that's why one play, it's a comedy, it's a satire by Aristophanes called The Wasp, is all about the jury system 
I myself have my doubts as to Aristophanes' democraticness. You know, it's not absolutely clear to me that he wasn't convinced because he's so good at revealing its flaws. But um, why are they called wasps? Because they want to sting the defendants. And typically the issue is thought to be very wealthy people who are going to be fined. It's not so much they're going to be condemned to death, though actually quite a lot were. If they were generals, they made a mistake or they lost a battle, they might be condemned to death. That's quite a sort of sanction to to hold up against an official, which of course makes people think twice before putting their name forward for these positions. But at any rate, the jurors in Aristophanes' wasps, they love inflicting in a case where there's a divided um, penalty. In other words, it's not absolutely fixed what the penalty would be. And Socrates' trial is one of those. Uh, He was allowed, having been uh, found guilty, to put forward what he thought would be the appropriate penalty. He put forward a radically inappropriate one and the jurors were so angry with him that more of them voted that he should be put to death than had voted him guilty of impiety in the first place it's very odd to us i mean we find all this amateur and um well not we there's no notion of precedent in the there's no notion of evidence as we have you know very tightly defined what counts as relevant evidence and so on so this aspect is i think the most single controversial aspect of ancient athenian democracy to a modern eye on the other hand, there are some really, really good speeches. So <laughs> who knows Who knows which is better? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I suppose one thing that we should mention, of course, is, is that there are exclusions to this democracy, most notably slaves and women. And Aristotle, whom I admire, uh, and I believe you do as well, nonetheless, on both of these issues is pretty sort of repulsive for modern eyes to read. I mean, he's extraordinarily, there's this extraordinary misogyny, which says, you know, women are, are, are biologically incapable yeah. of democracy, they're not capable of that kind of reason. And then he also writes about people who are natural slaves. And this, you know, I heard a very interesting paper many years ago now, not completely convincing, but ingenious, which said that the Aristotelian category of a natural slave was designed to be impossible to actually exist. I thought that was really very uh, ingenious, but perhaps not entirely true reading. It nonetheless perhaps opens up, you know, one thing to talk about. You know, one of my favorite books is big, big, big um, GM de, de, de de Saint-Croix, Saint-Croix, I don't know, book on sort of the class structure in the ancient world. And that's sort of my question is really how much this democratic superstructure depended on the existence of slavery in particular. Yeah, well, that's a very tough one. But let me just um, take it at a broader level, the distinction between any modern liberal representative indirect democracy and any ancient direct one. Even with our relatively, by ancient Greek standards, watered down democracy, it wasn't until the late 19th century that women were deemed adult women. And then in this country, of course, <coughs> excuse me, it was first of all um, restricted to women of a certain age and a certain uh, economic standing and a certain marital state, all these um, restrictions. So there's nothing very extraordinary about the exclusion of women. 
The fact that um, pretty much throughout the ancient Greek world, slavery was not merely um, condoned, but actually um, taken for granted. It was part of the air they breathed. They um, had slaves, they'd had slave vocabulary from their founding, um, as we would say, literature, that is the Homeric epics. Admittedly, and this is what's interesting to me about the Greeks in general, is they were very critical because there's a, a line in both Iliad and the Odyssey which says, when the day of slavery comes upon a previously free person, male or female, it takes away half their quality as a human being. So slavery is by definition dehumanizing and one would say depersonalizing. So that's critical. There's a, there's a negative um, anti-slavery tendency. And Aristotle, who you quite rightly said, expresses appalling views by our standards, he has to argue against people who say all slavery is morally wrong because it's based on force and no human relations that are morally defensible should be based on physical force. That's very interesting. And so uh, Aristotle's argument against that is that slavery is in accordance with nature. It's natural because the polis, the citizen state, is natural. I mean, it's a very difficult argument, but it's a, a classic one because by natural, what he means is unalterable. It has to be that way. And you rightly said that the argument uh, he puts forward, I think it's not an argument, but about women's incapacity being biologically based is that it is not in the nature of woman to be, now it's a rather puzzling phrase, to have rationality that is authoritative. So, Whereas a slave, a natural slave, cannot reason at all, so you can't make an argument to him or her that he or she could understand and act on. A woman, on the other hand, a free Greek citizen woman, she can understand, she can reason, argue with you, but, and then he's got a very lame uh, addendum. So what's the difference between a male and a female rationality? Oh, women's rationality is inauthoritative. It can't um, result in authoritative action. And what I think is at stake there, what he's implying is women are liable to be overwhelmed by emotion. So whereas males course they experience emotions but their reason is capable of overcoming any emotion women generically typically not well it's nonsense it's bonkers and it's a dreadful argument but for practical purposes what um the had had women been empowered this is actually acted out on the Athenian stage. You remember I mentioned Aristophanes' Wasps. That's all about the jury system. Well, he wrote a play some years later, and it's called Women Being Assembly. Um, men, as it were. So women dress up, they, they put on male clothing. And of course, this is all masked. So you must imagine a, a male mask, but they're somehow still, the audience has got to get the idea that they're really biologically female. 
they pitch up at an assembly meeting, and assembly meetings might begin very early, in other words, at daybreak. They pack the meeting, they put on the agenda, it's all actually impossible, but this is the fantasy, the motion, women should rule the city. So not just democratia, but gynaikokratia. And the motion is passed because there are more of them than of actual men in the assembly. And then the consequences, and it's a very nasty play because what it shows is how dreadful women are. I mean, if they were to be empowered, think how terrible it would be. But the point is, um, I think Aristotle's point is that if you empower women, you change the dynamic, not only in the public sphere, but in the private sphere. And he is very, very clear that within the household, he says every state is organically built up from a number of households. And then you get to the bigger stage of a town and then a district and then the central institutions. Well, in the household, the man must be authoritative. And there Therefore, to have women in the public sphere on an equal footing with men would just mess up. It would be anti-natural. Mm. So this is this is perhaps a, a way into I, one of the, the questions I find most interesting. Obviously, the, the question about sort of the, the, the relationship between literacy and democracy is you know, deep and enormously ramified and complicated one. But, but the way you've been talking about Greek cultural production has been in terms of theatre and you know, you've mentioned uh, two plays which get called comedies. Um, I mean, they're certainly funny and vicious and cruel. <laughs> um, but there's there's also, I think, something um, to be said about tragedy, which I know you've been been thinking about and, and writing on recently. And and those plays, are sort of, the, which we you know, which come down to us um, you know, largely accidentally. The, these were written and performed in in competitive festivals. Um, as part of sort of these these hugely important national uh, or sort of citywide religious festivals, and even today are often sort of really very extraordinary and very you know, profound to read. And they're not morally simple; um, they can seem deceptively so at the surface, but they are unsettling. They often take place in cities other than Athens. The engines of their drama are often these sort of complex and powerful women who are often very different from the putative sort of Athenian ideal. And I think above all, they, they tend to bring one face to face with these kind of very deep questions of political motivation. So I know you've been you know, working and thinking, especially about those tragedies set in another city state. Is there a connection between sort of tragedy and democracy? What, what role did it play for the Athenians? I should say that this is controversial. I myself <laughs> have absolutely no, no doubt, but I ought to say in fairness that there are people who take the opposite view that given, for example, the fact that an Athenian tragedy can travel, that's to say, might be received and appreciated outside the immediate democratic context of its, incidentally, only one-off performance. Um, the fact that it can travel, the fact that you and I can see something, uh, we living in the 21st century in a totally, um, suggests therefore that it's not um, necessarily and uniquely democratic and 5th and 4th century BC. The ones that survive, of course, are 5th century BC. However, however, against that, I've written uh, a number of articles and uh, a number of things uh, to this effect. Though tragedy as a genre was invented before democracy, 
it didn't become an official part of a festival cycle until very significantly, I mean, the dating is absolutely crucial, immediately after the foundation of the earliest form of democracy at Athens. And all the three great tragedians, that is, uh, Aeschylus born in the 520s, well, he's in his 30s when this new democratic mode of doing uh, drama and doing tragedy in particular has come into being. Sophocles was born in the 490s, Euripides in 480. They are in the first half, the sort of heroic phase of the development of this utterly new, no other state anywhere in the world had ever had a system which entrusted ordinary people in assembly at a mass meeting to take absolutely major decisions of life and death affecting the polity and indeed affecting Greek civilization, as we know with the so-called Greco-Persian wars. So these guys are on their metal. And it's not accidental that the very first play that we hear about causing um, real angst in Athens is a play about Athenian-Persian relations. And then the first play, as I've already mentioned, that survives is a play by Aeschylus the Persians, for whom, for which, and of course he wrote, he had to write, not one, not two, not three, but four plays, three tragedies. Tragedies, a satire drama. So the Percy is one of a block of four plays. Well, the funder of it was none other than a very young Pericles. And since the play was mainly focused on a particular battle, uh, the Battle of Salamis, where some of us celebrating the 2500th or thereabouts anniversary of it right now, um, since though Themistocles, the architect of that victory, can't be mentioned by name, that's against the conventions of tragedy. Nevertheless, it's very clear what the message is that's coming across. And I've already mentioned one political implication. The Persian emperor is not responsible, whereas democracy, by definition, makes all officials responsible. So the intimate nexus between democracy, theatre and tragedy in particular, and in this case foreign relations and relations in particular with Persia, is to me you know, unarguable. It just seems to me so obvious. You can then um, have a debate about what exactly was Aeschylus's own political outlook. So you've got the Oresteia uh, trilogy, which is the only trilogy that survives, 458 BC. And it ends up with um, supposed mythological um, instantiation of a particular court. Well, that court, the court of Areopagus, very old, it's the oldest Athenian um, legal institution and still exists in the 5th century in the democracy. But just a few years before, three years before, that court had been radically transmogrified, both in terms of its location within the political structure, that is, it had been defanged, de-oligarchized and democratized. But on the other hand, it was the most august 
because the most ancient. And so the Athenians were an interesting combination. They radically innovated, but at the same time, they um, emphasized what they called tapatria, the things of our fathers, which of course is reassuring. And today, well, one of the things I think, why is the world or why are so many people within supposedly liberal democracies moving in such a radically conservative direction in Hungary? And partly it is this desire in a world that's changing fantastically fast for some sort of sense of certainty. So you get nostalgic in a very bad way very often. Well, the Athenians were nostalgic in, I think, quite a good way because they mainly innovated, but they didn't lose the anchor that um, past common values still held. Um, I want to spend maybe a bit of time on 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 ancient critics of democracy and i think maybe we can start i think think you've alluded to it but i'm not sure how widely it's appreciated but just saying a little about the writing that comes down to us from the ancient world which say for a handful of writers is near universally skeptical of democracy and in many cases it, it seems to me to be outright hostile why is that is it is it a quirk of transmission or is that really the mass of ancient literature it's um, in a way a no-brainer because, as I've said before, if democracy in its class struggle aspect is the rule of the masses, the poor, over the rich few, and if, as is the case, I mean, it's almost um, predictable, in order to be intelligent and literate enough to write something that is so thought worth preserving that it's come down all the way to us 2,500 years later, it's bound to be written by a member of the few as opposed to a member of the many. Now, some elite people, but a very few elite people, were convinced Democrats. They actually thought that it was good that the poor masses had the decisive say in public policy and the way in which um, politicians were controlled and so on and so on. And the most conspicuous of these are in the 5th century BC, Pericles, and in the 4th century BC, Demosthenes, who was likewise a, a convinced ideological Democrat. And one of the very few sources of positive pro-democratic ideological propaganda or utterance by a practicing politician is to be found in Demosthenes' corpus. There are some prefaces of his speeches which enunciate why it is that we're doing, in his case, of course, litigation or uh, assembly decision-making. Why do we do it in the way we do it? Why should the masses have the power that they do and so on? But go right back to the very earliest um, exponent of um, democracy, democratic ideas. That's Herodotus. Well, he's not hostile, actually. But when you get on to uh, Thucydides and Thucydides' teacher, Antiphon, Thucydides, a historian, Antiphon, a practical politician, a rhetorician, a speechwriter, and an extreme ideological oligarch, then you're quite right. From Antiphon through Plato, and Aristotle is less um, vehemently hostile to all forms of democracy. He can see some virtue in democracy as a kind of contract 
impact theory that you pitch everybody's um, view into, as it were, a pot and see what comes out. So it's a sort of wisdom of the crowds notion that uh, we're familiar with today. But you're quite right. Most writers who explicitly address the issue are hostile to democracy mainly because they believe that it is a case of the ignorant, stupid, and therefore fickle, poor, ruling uh, badly over for the advantage of the poor in an economic sense, over the wiser, better educated, more sensible minority of the population. And so it's an intellectual, but it's also an economic uh, argument. So this is a this is a condemnation about democracy as a kind of uh, class sectarianism, or, or yeah. yes, as you say, which which really does seem to recur throughout the history of arguments around democracy. You know, it's there in the eighteenth and nineteenth century as well. You know, even back when you know when democracy again becomes something that's that's part of kind of political common sense. Um, I, I wonder if there's an, another thing that we could spend some some time on here in these among these critics of democracy, which is a fear that seems to have permeated not just ideologically convinced anti-democrats but seems to have been something that animated the entirety of the democratic political body which is you know fear of stasis fear of civil war um you know and on a couple of occasions this obviously really does seem to overcome the city's political institutions including um obviously in the very dark period uh, under what gets called the the 30 yes and perhaps you could say just a little about that particular period and why that fear of civil war was so central, seemed so central to ancient democratic thought. Well, stasis is um, odd to us because we use the word stasis to mean steady state. But for them, stasis was a process of standing apart and then against in a hostile way, either simply intention, antagonism, or actual outright physical encounter even outright civil war and and murder of fellow citizens. So in a sense, there's nothing peculiar to democracy about this because stasis occurred before there was democracy anywhere in the Greek world. But um, democracy would aggravate and exacerbate it because it brought out what was the underlying Um, reason for it, which is, I think, fundamentally class struggle, a rich, poor distinction. And since democracy, by definition, in one definition of demos, actually makes, you know, in your face, you can't sort of get around the fact that it is the mass of the poor citizens who have the power, the kratos. And if you're therefore one of the few and you don't like that, then you are going to resist. However, Uh, It's very important to say this, that yes, there were three outbreaks of stasis in Athens, but in a 180-year period. Now, actually, the period of stasis, and it's um, Aristotle who actually devotes two books, we call them books, but about a quarter of his politics to preventing, to trying to analyze why stasis breaks out. And because it threatens politics, normal politics, We've got to, haven't we, try to prevent it happening or if it breaks out to cure it. So he has a long section on it and it's more particularly a fourth century, 
thing than it is a 5th century thing. But at any rate, in Athens, it's relatively rare because they devised institutions to prevent stasis in normal circumstances. However, it did break out three times, as I said. One was when the proponent of a radical shift in democracy, an extra dimension of democratization, including the defanging of the Areopagus that I mentioned before, Ephialtes was murdered. And that's a classic example of a political assassination in response to a direct um, political change which was favoring the masses. And so his opponents, the extreme or moderate oligarchs who didn't like the fact the Areopagus had been downgraded, that the masses had been upgraded judicially as well as in other ways, they took him out. But much more serious because it actually transformed the entire nature of politics, whereas the assassination of Ephialtes did not. In the very long, very severe, very damaging so-called Peloponnesian War, Athenian Peloponnesian War, on and off 27 years. Well, in the latter phase, the last seven-year burst, as it were, Athens made a terrible mistake. And this, of course, played straight into the hands of the anti-democrats. They thought that they could conquer not just Syracuse, another big city like Athens and a democracy, ironically, but they could somehow take over the whole city and the whole island and then get its revenues and this would be great for the war against Sparta. Big mistake because they lost terribly. Thousands of men, hundreds of ships and lots of money. So the anti-democrats took took this to be a classic moment. You see, democracy doesn't work. It's losing us major battles. We're vulnerable now to Persia in the east, to Sparta in the south. We've got to moderate, and they said to begin with, they were lying, of course, moderate our democracy. What they meant was we've got to get rid of democracy altogether. And it was actually by legal means it was actually a vote of a packed assembly that um, initially got rid of the uh, democracy in 411. But softening up had gone on. There'd been political assassinations. There were gangs. It's a bit like the Nazi stormtroopers of the 30s. So there was the first one. And then the second one was actually the second major um, suspension or uh, abolition of democracy was um, imposed from outside. At the end of the war, Athens has lost. It's uh, in a very, very bad way. And Sparta's in a position to impose on Athens the sort of regime that it wants to see running Athens so that Sparta's interests are looked after in mainland Greece and in the Aegean. And they install a extremely narrow, what the Greeks called a dynasty, a dunastia of just 30, a rule of a council of 30. So Athens had a previously a 500-member um, council selected by lot. This is a 30-member um, oligarchic council imposed at the as it were the barrel of a gun the point of a spear there's something that happens at the end of the rule of the 30 and it's a jumping off point for for the french classicist nicole rose book uh, uh on uh on that that moment at the end of uh, of that period and it's the intervention 
of someone called Cleocritus, who is a priest at Eleusis, a herald, I think, actually, at Eleusis. Uh, and it's a speech that's recorded or invented by, by Xenophon, who's very much not a Democrat. <laughs> but he mentions, uh, he, he mentions, you know, he says, you know, this religious official makes this invocation of kind of political wholeness of interrelation and kinship and you know, of, of common sharing of the city. And it seems to turn away this, what it's about to be a very bloody act of vengeance. And then that sets the stage for something that really seems very interesting in this sort of refoundation or reestablishment of Athenian democracy, which is an oath of amnesty, literally an oath of political forgetting. We're going to forget, bar some, some particular criminals themselves, um, we're going to forget what people did during this, uh, this interlude. Uh, and that, I think, is, is, is phenomenally interesting. I, I, we've, we've talked a little bit about how important accountability is to, to ancient Greek political thought. And here you have this moment in the refoundation of democracy where there is this, you know, I, I think it's imposed from outside, actually, but, but this oath of forgetting. Does that, this tell us something important? Does, do you think it speaks to something today? Uh, how, strong, how strongly was it maintained? Did the rancor persist? Well, I think you've picked your, you've put your finger on an absolute key moment, not just in ancient Athenian political life, but one of those moments which brings out the essence, the quintessence of what Athenian democracy was all about and how different, therefore, it really was from anything that you or I might be familiar with. You mentioned that Cleocritus was a, a priest, and then you said, no, uh, he was a herald. Well, he was a member of a family, aristocratic, and their title was um, herald, Kyrix. And so they were one of the two families that by heritage, inheritance, by genetics, produced the two chief priests of a particular religious phenomenon, which is the mysteries at Eleusis. Now, these are Athenian in the sense that Eleusis is actually where Aeschylus was from. It's not far from Athens. It's within the Athenian state. But it's also Pan-Hellenic. So anybody could be initiated in the mysteries at Eleusis. And even a slave, even a non-Greek slave, so long as he or she understood enough Greek to be able to take part in the ritual. And when Aristophanes, not long before the very end of the Peloponnesian War, he wrote a, a comedy called The Frogs. Well, his chorus, his main chorus, was not The Frogs, which is a subsidiary chorus, but because it was so funny, it's given its name to the play. But the main chorus consisted of Athenians initiated in the Eleusinian mysteries. So if you're looking for one institution that is going to bring together all Athenians, it's going to elide distinctions between rich and poor Democrats and oligarchs, that's going to heal after this one year of extremely unpleasant um, tyrannical domination by the 30, the Council of 30. And then there was actually a battle and people are you know, actual civil war deaths in the center of Athens and in the Piraeus, which is the main port city where mainly the poor um, citizens lived. Um, the, the main uh, naval element of Athens is the Piraeus and the naval commercial and military element is a dominant one in the Athenian state. It lies behind Athens's power and its uh, place in the world. At any rate, he makes a plea and it's completely... Uh, 
heard and acted on. But you also correctly said that this amnesty, amnestia, not remembering, was imposed from outside. And it was imposed from the outside by the Spartans, who were in the position. On the one hand, they put in place the 30 tyrants. That didn't go well. So they now want to make sure that the Athens that they're going to be overseeing, they're still in control of it, though they're giving it its political freedom back, freedom to choose democracy again. They still want it to be quiescent. They don't want it to be anti-Spartan. And they impose this amnesty. Now, how was it observed or to what extent was it genuinely observed? Our main source, you rightly say, is Xenophon. But the trial of Socrates, which happened just five years later, 399 BC, part of its um, backstory, which is not allowed to be made explicit because of the amnesty, he couldn't explicitly be accused of having been pro-oligarchic before the amnesty. And Actually, he was actually he was a member of the uh, citizen body under that Spartan thirty tyrant imposed regime. So he hasn't got a clean democratic record. He taught Alcibiades. He taught Critias, the leader of the thirty tyrants. In all these ways, he was suspect. But the prosecution couldn't explicitly accuse him on that ground. So they chose instead um, a religious charge of impiety. And that tells you what I've already said about um, the fact that this herald, a priest at Eleusis, is the spokesperson of unity. Religion and politics were not separated. There's no church as opposed to state. It's all one. You do politics through religion. So you attack Socrates on democratic grounds, but you use religion as the charge against him. So it was, um, sources agree, Xenophon is, as you rightly say, not a a Democrat. He's very pro-Spartan and he's intellectually an oligarch. Um, He says, and most sources agree, that it was observed. And uh, that's quite a remarkable fact. It does seem to be um, possibly the first general amnesty in history. And one of the things that um, J.S. Mill, when he's singling out what's peculiar or what's admirable about Athens, they had in amongst them, he says, these enemies, these anti-democrats, and yet they were so tolerant. Um, the, The ordinary democrats were by and large tolerant of, let's say, the Platos of this world, um, who were anti-democrats, but they were allowed to live freely within Athens. One of the things that reading your your work on democracy sort of leaves us with is is a rather um well one it, it sort of challenges any sort of whiggish conception that one might have about uh there, there being a necessary progression uh ever increasingly towards human freedom or mm-hmm. uh sort of equal treatment yeah. <laughs> that's certainly an illusion of which one can be disabused but i think it, it may be in a sharper and more particular way that it, there's a question to be asked that, that perhaps emerges from 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 that discussion around amnesty, which is which is this. So it, it's about the way in which we've talked about democracy in recent centuries and recent years. There's a term which I think has no Greek predecessor, but does have a Roman one, which is about the will of the people. 
And you can make a case that this is a, a rather odd, sort of almost semi-mystical idea that, that is brought up in the 18th century, that there's a sort of general will out there that can be sort of determined, whether that's through sort of reasoned democratic debate or whether it's through some sort of odd sort of populist condensation uh, of a general sentiment. Um, but it does have its its antecedents in, in Cicero's Rome. I, I suppose in your account, ancient democracy was was profoundly agonistic and we live now, I think, as everyone says, in intensely, bitterly polarized times. Yeah. Is there a lesson that can be drawn both from that amnesty, but also from ancient accounts of democracy in having, in developing a healthy uh, agonism in the contemporary world? You're completely right in what you say as a matter of um, historical fact. Voluntas populi was the phrase popularized by Cicero, who was uh, like almost all Roman Republicans, especially people who become consul and hit the top offices, um, radically anti anything like ancient Greek direct democracy, which was the rule of the masses. And the Roman Republican system was exceptionally careful framed to keep ordinary people disfranchised. And, um, uh, you know, this doesn't take much demonstration. You're right also that it's in the 18th century that, uh, in particular, Rousseau, the, the general will. But what I suppose I have against the notion, the way it's used, is the singularity. So the uh, people who appeal to it uh, speak of as if the will was both unambiguous and single. And they speak of the people as if we're all in it together, we're all the same, there are no legitimate uh, differences of uh, opinion or affiliation. And so where we are now in terms of actual antagonism, as you rightly say, does somewhat recall a situation of stasis, pre-Civil War, but antagonistic um, division. What's different, what's completely new, is uh, new media of uh, communication, that the ancients, because they lacked any form of um, information technology, they were, of course, dependent wholly on face-to-face -face communication. And typically, Athenian pitches up at an assembly meeting. He depends not just for his opinion, but for the facts. There are no newspapers. There's no um, mass uh, communication media of any sort. And therefore, honesty, uh, what you um, come to think of a particular person who's putting forward a particular point of view, does that person have an interest, a personal one? Has his advice in the past been on the whole good, as one would see from a Democrat, and so on? Therefore, it's very much more um, interactional. What's I think dreadful now is the privacy of space. We're radically atomized. And of course, under COVID, there is now absolutely no possibility of genuine mass meetings. But we are vulnerable, therefore, to the sorts of um, information that is uh, hurled at us. And it was about four years ago that I first became very, very aware of cyber warfare. That is not just within a country, people trying to influence your view through um, the internet, through Facebook and Instagram and all that, but um, actually whole countries having a 
foreign policy mode of attacking the population of another country through cyber warfare. And of course, now this is um, common knowledge, I think. But uh, to me, it certainly wasn't, even as recently as four years ago. So I'm not clear that as long as we're in the kind of cycle of news and, in, and well, let's be honest, mis- and disinformation, the sort of thing that James Graham very well brought out in his uh, TV drama about the vote leave versus the Remain campaign for the Brexit referendum, as long as we're in the middle of this polarisation and mass media of a cyber kind are available, I'm not confident we're going to come out of it anytime soon that's it for this week paul's book democracy a life is available now of course as very shortly will be his book on thebes a short excerpt from which you'll find linked from the navara site my thanks to paul for such an enriching exciting conversation i will be back next week and until then stay democratic this has been navara fm on resonance 104.4 fm i have been james butler bye-bye this broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.